Hello, welcome to another episode of Empower Apps Show. Today we have with us Renee Cachot and Josh Berlin. Guys, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So I've heard a lot of issues that companies have with architecture, especially architecture with iOS apps. And I know you guys have a book coming out as part of the Ray Wonderlich series, iOS app architecture. So this is something I'm really interested. Maybe if you could kind of define the problems you've seen a lot of companies run into when it comes to architecting a successful mobile app, especially in iOS. Yeah. One of the biggest challenges with iOS development is that there's really no strong opinion from Apple. So everyone's really kind of left to roll their own patterns. The biggest issues that I've seen is just slow in team velocity because we read a lot more code than we write. And every time that we go into a code base to add a new feature or fix a bug or something, the more tightly coupled all the pieces of your app are, the more you have to read to kind of understand all of the things that you need to understand to make a safe change without breaking something. And so kind of architecture really helps speed up your team because if you can kind of use the right patterns and break things up into, you know, easy to reason about chunks, it's much, much easier to find where you need to make the change and have confidence that you're not going to break something. So that's what I would say are kind of like the main points on that. Yeah. And, and another thing is like, a lot of apps that are built usually start with maybe like one person or a small team. And that person, maybe that developer has an opinion about how to architect the app. And as a team grows and the product org wants more changes, it becomes a lot harder to make those changes if the team isn't on board with one type of architecture and everyone is going to have their own opinion and it's going to be a lot easier to make these changes if everyone agrees on one architecture and uh, knows where to find everything. Everything's documented because one day when the team grows more, uh, you know, you're going to potentially have more problems. Like Renee was saying, finding things in the code base. When the app is small, it's not as big of a deal. But when it grows, it becomes a lot more challenging. So it's good to get these architectural patterns in early on and have everyone on board. Maybe talk a little bit about your background, but how did you guys get into iOS development? So I got into it back in around 2008. I was doing a bunch of kind of web, Java surface, you know, internal IT development. And my wife had bought an iPhone and was kind of really trying to get me on board with the Apple ecosystem. Back then, I was kind of a Microsoft guy. You know, I was like, I'll try developing for this. It would be interesting. And I just got hooked, honestly, like, working with like very abstract things kind of in the cloud and kind of in the background versus working on something that you can kind of feel and touch and look and show your friends, kind of a really, really cool thing. So that's how I got into it. How about you, Josh? Yeah, so in college, it was like maybe 10 years ago when iOS first came out and no one was really teaching this in school. And I wanted a, a fitness tracker. So I built one for myself and ended up getting a job at a company building fitness products for Windows. They wanted an Android and iOS app. And somehow I got the job and uh, <laughs> I've been uh, building iOS apps ever since then. It's funny. So you, how big are the teams that you've worked with? All kinds of ranges. I mean, Josh and I used to work at a consultancy called Mutual Mobile. And kind of the big project that we worked together on where we kind of established all this architecture stuff. We had a team about 
six iOS and about six Android. But, you know, in that agency, we had other projects that were like two on each platform. So anywhere between two and six on each platform when we were in Mutual Mobile. It seems like one of the big things I'm hearing is as more and more code gets written, there's almost, use the term, interesting use the term of velocity. And this is a specific term, obviously, in the agile world, but I can understand what you mean. You basically mean speed of the project and its movement. But I'd almost say like when you get more and more code, it becomes more and more difficult to manage. And then on top of it, there's like an inertia there. The bigger it gets, the heavier it gets, and the harder it is to move it. It seems to me like what you're saying is like good architecture makes it much quicker and much easier to add more and more components to an app. Is that correct? Yeah. The weird part about it, though, is to get to the point where you get those benefits, you do have to kind of slow down a little bit. And that's the part that most organizations struggle with is that they want that high velocity up front on day zero. And you just can't get that if you don't spend the time to work together as a team and really figure out the patterns that everyone's on board with and really kind of experiment a little bit and kind of lock it in. That's one thing that the project that I worked with Josh on, you know, the first couple of months, it was a pretty slow process. I mean, we had everyone in every code review. We experimented with the patterns that we were using and we were tweaking them and whatnot. And so at the very beginning, it really wasn't a high velocity project, probably slower than average. But then about three or four months into it, we started moving really, really fast. And we had a big deadline because this project was for a big brand for the you know World Cup and we needed it by a certain day. And it was a pretty large scope project. And by the end of it, the last about three, four months of it, I mean, we were moving super fast. Everyone was able to build features pretty quickly. I don't know, Josh, if you want to expand on any of that stuff. I think um, we were pretty lucky to have those two to three months to really nail down the architecture we liked and to implement an architecture that would allow us after that like initial ramp up period to build new features super, super fast and not break everything. Because if we didn't have those first two months and we just started like writing code, like building new features, I don't even know, like everything probably would have crumbled because we didn't have a good foundation. So I think it's super important, like maybe you don't need two to three months, but maybe even two to three weeks when you start a new project to really nail down the architecture and figure out how you're going to be able to build features quickly later on and test them. Do you think part of it is making sure somebody's there to enforce consistency or do you need like an architecture role set up for a team or what are ways that you can like foster that within a company? I don't think you need necessarily an architecture role, but I think that having meetings at the early stages of products about architecture is very important. And you're talking like highly technical meetings, right? Yes, very technical, like a lot of diagrams, like class diagrams, how everything's going to fit together and like coming up with some patterns. So I don't think you need necessarily like someone who's an architect on the project. I mean, it definitely would help, but I think like just a team of four or five people could have these meetings and figure this stuff out early on. Do you need somebody to like call the shots at all? I mean, I think it's probably better if you have someone driving this and everyone's just kind of like tuning their plan, but I don't think it's completely necessary. I mean, as long as everyone, I think what's more important is everyone's in agreement and everyone feels that they can have input and they're not just like doing what this one person says. 
Yeah, I've been in situations like that where there's somebody who pretty much is ordering everybody what to do as far as architecture. And uh, yeah, it can be really difficult to be in situations like that. I think the DNA of the team has a lot to do with it. I've been on very different kinds of teams. And in teams where you have folks that are very like self-motivated, you don't really need someone calling the shots. In other teams I've been on, there are folks that, you know, maybe want some more guidance. And so for those, they're actually wanting someone to call the shots. So I think it really depends on kind of the personality and makeup of, of each team. But it definitely helps to have at least someone driving. And at least the best way it's worked, I think, is making sure that whoever is driving it is very open-minded and is more interested in having decisions being made less than pushing their personal agenda on what they personally think is the best architecture. I really like that. That's a really good point. So maybe you guys can get into a little bit of the nitty gritty. What are like the different styles or different patterns that people can implement, especially when it comes to iOS apps and architecture? So there's three main styles that we've kind of categorized most of the patterns into. The more traditional, what we call the MV patterns, which are like MVC, MVP, MVVM. And so like Apple, obviously, they really push MVC. Yes. If there's any pattern that they push, usually MVC is one of their oldest and most yep. steadfast patterns. They push it a lot. You know, UIKit, Cocoa Touch is designed around that pattern. And so that's the pattern that you will fight the least with when you're working with Cocoa Touch. It's a good pattern. And there's a lot of materials out there on folks that are trying to kind of demystify all the negative kind of vibes around MVC because you can do MVC very well. And I think that's actually the main thing that we learned, Josh and I working together, is that it's not so much a matter of which pattern you use, it's how well you put it to practice. And you can like take any pattern and do a horrible job of applying it. You could take any pattern and do a great job of applying it. Like Dave DeLong, who used to work at Apple, he's a big proponent of MVC, has a lot of cool articles out there on, hey, MVC is not so bad. You just, you know, decompose your view controllers into smaller controllers and you'll be fine. You don't have to do this whole MVP thing <laughs> to fix those problems. Yeah, like everyone hates on MVC, but like, I think a lot of it is just like how you implement it. It's not so much that MVC is a bad pattern. It's just like, it's kind of like a broad thing and there's a lot of ways to do it poorly and a lot of ways to do it well. Yeah, we had Alex Bushon, who uh, does contract work for Uber. And uh, he, his big complaint was how MVC gets unwieldy with really, really, really large projects. And that's kind of what I've heard. I use MVC. I don't have really large projects that I feel uncomfortable still implementing it. But I think one of the things I've seen, especially novice developers do, is they'll take a pattern, like a specific design pattern, and just use it to use it without understanding why they use it. Most of the time, design patterns, I feel like they end up growing out of, an like, just based on my experience, I've experienced enough that patterns just naturally develop in your code if you're already using a lot of other things, like making sure that things only do one thing, I forgot what that's called, or, you know, having a healthy use of, like, protocols or interfaces. That automatically creates healthy patterns that follow patterns that we've seen in various books and stuff. Yeah, I experienced that exact same kind of sequence of events where like I first learned about design patterns and it was like a kid in a candy store. I was like, <laughs> oh, I want to use as many of these as I can. And then it kind of dies down. And then when you just start trying to solve the problems that are in front of you, it's like you said that you'll end up using those patterns, but not because 
you said, oh, I want to use the observer patterns. It's more because, oh, you have these external signals coming from the outside, coming into the view controller, and you want to kind of decouple the view control from that. Oh, let me build an observer for that. Yeah, and then you realize, wait a second, this is an observer pattern. And it's like, exactly, yeah. they naturally grow out of your code. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What other patterns do you see used throughout iOS? Yeah, I think that like the reactive pattern has been super hot lately. Yes. Maybe it's not the best thing to do on iOS, like to write all this reactive code. Actually, at the company I work for now, when I started a year and a few months ago, the app was using a lot of RX Swift and and RX Swift is hot right now. Like. It's very hot. It's very hot. And when I first started, I was I know RX Swift and I know like how to write it, but it's still like sometimes when you look at a new project with RX Swift, you're kind of just like it's hard to wrap your head around like what's going on. It's kind of funny because now a year later we have no RX Swift in the project. We've moved completely away from reactive programming, and I think that's more of like it's just easier to understand. Sometimes when the whole team doesn't know RX Swift, it's like, well, do we want to continue down this path, teach everyone this new style, this like new trendy hot style, or do you want to move to something more of like an MVC pattern where everyone's more familiar and it's maybe more readable for everybody? I also feel like I don't like bringing in third-party libraries <laughs> that necessarily fight against the grain of. And I'm not against that pattern specific, but if you're like, let's say for instance you're doing React like Facebook, React, JavaScript stuff, right? Okay, at least that follows that pattern. You're not fighting against the grain because that's what the whole thing is set up for. But in iOS, like you're fighting against Apple and their push for MVC. And okay, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. But if after, you know, WWDC things don't work out that way, like you're dependent on the React Swift team to like keep up with it, which that's up to you. That's a risk you have to be willing to take. Again, like I think that's where the team DNA kind of comes in and. That's why I think that it's bad advice to say, here's the one architecture that you should always use. It's really about looking at who you're working with because there's some folks that are really into that stuff. And so I've been in environments both very reactive and both not. And trying to bring a reactive into a non-reactive environment is really hard. <laughs> it's really, really hard, like Josh said. And it's almost not worth it. The other thing I think that kind of popped in my mind while we were discussing this stuff was that uh, with bringing in third-party libraries. One of the things that I kind of don't like about RX Swift is that it's a really big library. And if you really think about the common use cases, you're probably only using about maybe 60% of the library, maybe 50%. So you're only using a portion of it, but you're paying all the binary costs and the weight that it brings in. I really wish they could break it down into like a core version of it or not. But bringing those third-party dependencies can be pretty bad or pretty heavy on your app. Yeah, I kind of agree. So anything else you want to talk about as far as different styles? I know like dependency injection has been big, protocol-oriented programming, especially important in the Swift realm. Yeah, I mean, dependency injection is kind of cool because it's kind of a universal concept that we've been able to apply to all the different patterns. So I think of dependency injection as kind of like the foundation of the architecture where you can put patterns on top of it. And if there's one thing that you want to focus on getting it right, I think, especially if you're trying to build for a large team or a large set of teams, dependency injections is really important to get. And the thing there is Josh and I have done this several different ways as we were learning the pattern and using it in different environments and different teams, different companies. We started writing everything by hand because with dependency injection, there are frameworks and libraries that kind of help you follow the pattern. 
And that's typically where everyone goes to is, oh, let me find a library framework that helps me with dependency injection. We found that using those libraries hurts more than helps. We found that handwriting all your dependency injection containers is actually the easiest way to write code that's easy to understand. It's a little more painful. It's a little bit more boilerplate. It's a little bit of more boring work. But on the other side of that, you get a code base that's much easier to read and understand and trace through. So that's my advice I would give to any iOS developer is, sure, like look at the frameworks and play around with them and use them. At the end of the day, I would recommend starting with handwriting stuff. The key thing there is to make sure you don't put everything in one container, you know, break it down into multiple containers. But if you do that, you'll find that it's much easier to manage. Do you agree with that, Josh? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think if you're going to do one thing to make your app architecture better, it's like use dependency injection. And like Renee was saying, DI can go from very simple to very, very, very complicated. I want to break down dependency injection because some folks might not know what exactly that means. And I'm going to try what I do. So I learned dependency injection at my previous employer. It was like, this is amazing. Now this allows for unit testing and easy plugins and stuff. We had talked before the recording about how like, I used to be a C-sharp developer and we used Castle Windsor for dependency injection, which was great because Castle Windsor, it can do all the reflection so it can like look up whatever the default implementation of a specific interface is and automatically do that for you. But then if you want to like use mocks, you can use mocks to unit test as well. Um, and I miss some of the ability to do reflection, automate some of the ability to plug in certain classes. So the way I've done dependency injection is kind of employing the protocol-oriented way of creating a protocol for almost everything and then having uh, specific components. Like, for instance, I have a class that needs a thing that turns a wheel, so I have a protocol for turning a wheel, and then I'll have a specific implementation of that, and then that way the constructor for that thing that takes in the thing that turns the wheel can take in anything that turns a wheel. It doesn't matter, but then I have a default implementation that I use in the app. And then in my unit test, I might have a mock one just to see, you know, that it works regardless of what gets plugged in. Is that kind of what we're talking about here? Yeah. And we're talking about also like the resolution of these things. So like when you say, okay, I want to create this object and this object has a dependency on three other objects that maybe conform to a specific protocol, how that construction happens, how the assembly of, of the dependency graph happens. That's where tools like Swinject and other kind of dependency injection frameworks help you out. But the thing that we found is that those tools use what's called runtime resolution. So when you say, I want this object, like let's say I want this view controller, and it depends on this networking thingy and this database thingy. When you say, hey, give me this view controller, it does a resolution at runtime rather than compile time. So if for some reason you don't register how to create a network thingy or a database thingy, you won't find out until you run the app, which is kind of a more dangerous way of doing it. Whereas if you just handwrite your dependency containers that know how to create a view controller with a network thingy and database thingy, you'll find out at compile time if you're not able to create a database object conforming this protocol and, and injecting into the constructor, it just, you know, which just won't compile which is great for a really big app where you have lots of different protocols and services and objects and a large dependency graph. You don't want to depend on having to run through all the runtime logic to expose any kind of missing dependencies there. So Yeah, that's what I feel like has been the big roadblock for me is the lack of like decent resolution 
frameworks to plug in. So I just end up, you know, hard coding it in the app and taking defaults and things like that. Yeah. And that's exactly how we found it to be the most helpful. Yep. I mean, even doing it that way, like you're still getting all the benefits of dependency injection where your constructors take in interfaces like protocols and uh, these classes become testable. So even though you're not using a framework, you're still getting all the benefits of DI doing it yourself by hand. Exactly. And then, you know, when you do a unit test, you can mock it. You're not dependent on that specifically. So you guys have had experience. What other languages have you had experience developing? It sounds like, Renee, you've done some Java stuff. Yeah, Java. I've done JavaScript. I've done Kotlin, Objective-C, and Swift. Those are the main ones, yeah. A couple of years ago, I spent some time doing a React development with JavaScript. Okay. Yeah, I've done some Java before, a little bit of Kotlin. What have you found as what's unique as far as iOS app architecture? What have been unique benefits and unique challenges that you've seen you know, with that and with the dev tools in general? It's a good question. There's a lot of thoughts there that are running through my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I think is challenging is that Apple, even though they do push MVC quite heavily and Cocoa Touch does kind of you know, is designed with MVC in mind, they don't seem to have a very strong opinion about it, at least not around tooling and things like that. Whereas like in the Android side, Google's really into architecture these days and they're putting out like libraries that are all about just architecture to kind of help folks, you know, architect their apps. And so I think the platform having an opinion really helps because it allows people to kind of rally around that set of patterns or that set of thing and build tooling and libraries that kind of just work with it. And like an iOS and Android, you don't have to use those things, right? But if you want to move fast, it's a good default. Whereas in iOS, we really don't have that. So that's, I think, a challenge. It's funny you mention that because I'm doing a talk on multi-threaded, like asynchronous development. I'm preparing for it. And one of the big libraries for Swift to do that is actually done by Google. Yeah. So <laughs> even though we have like Swift Neo by Apple, Google is even providing libraries for Swift developers. Yeah, and I guess Swift is a huge challenge, right? Because it's a great language. It's moving so slowly. I mean, you compare it with something like Kotlin, you know, we just have huge gaps in Swift, like concurrency primitives that are not there. And on Kotlin, you have things like coroutines and things like that. It's just, you know, Kotlin's moving a lot faster than Swift. And so when you're doing both Android and iOS, today's a weird time to be doing both because there's a lot lacking on on the iOS side. It used to be the other way around. Yeah. I mean, it almost seems like with Swift, they've slowed down because they've placed such a high priority on like ABI stability. I think now that they've gotten over that hurdle, it'll be interesting to see. And we'll get into that, like what they might come up with as far as development tools for iOS and maybe updates to Swift as a language. How about as far as like Xcode, dev tools? It seems like we're going in the same direction where it's just like Xcode it's painful to do Swift development on sometimes. Like, I'm glad we have some refactoring stuff, but just like autocomplete, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Very cryptic messages from the compiler when we just aren't doing our generic protocols the right way that it wants us to. What other stuff have you run into? The error messages are kind of uh, tough. I think it's another reason to just make your apps as simple as possible. That's why, like, sometimes using third party libraries just makes all the error messages worse and it's harder to find bugs. It fixes one problem but creates yeah. three more. Yeah, so like maybe you have like a really cool architecture and like you have one-way data flow 
you know, everything works properly. But when something breaks, it might be a lot harder to fix versus if, if you go a simpler route and a simpler architecture, you're kind of setting yourself up for success later on. So I think like, like Xcode has come a long way in the last 10 years, but you still have to fight it sometimes for sure. It's definitely creaking. I mean, like the fact that they had to kind of rebuild the build system underneath it completely. <laughs> I mean, it really needs a, kind of an overhaul. Yeah. Yeah. Build times are pretty high. It's <laughs> not as bad as iTunes, but iTunes. it's still, it needs help. Yeah, and the thing is like Google's just continuously improving their IDEs and it kind of like makes me want to start doing more Android development. Not like I love iOS, like that's my number one, but it is I think interesting because they're doing so much with architecture and their build system is amazing, right? So iOS developers can learn a lot from the Android platform. Yeah, and it's amazing to see like there are some really good tools out there that third parties have built. Like I'm just thinking of like Fastlane and say what you will about CocoaPods or Carthage, <laughs> but they're essentially filling in the gap that Apple hasn't provided. Like hopefully Swift package management can fill a lot of that gap like with dependencies, but still it's nice to see that at least there's a community out there filling in the gaps that yeah. Apple hasn't filled, right? Yeah. It's strange, though, because, you know, Apple is such a large organization with so much money. You know, I feel like if they really wanted to solve these problems, they probably could do a pretty good job. And they are doing things like they acquired BuddyBuild, and so we'll see what, what happens with that. But I still feel like there's so much more that they could do in terms of helping developers in the environments that they're in today. because. A lot of the tooling that Apple builds, A, Apple doesn't use themselves. Things like Interface Builder isn't that widely used, I think, in Apple. And so what happens is a lot of the stuff that Apple builds is not really tailored for large organizations or large teams building large apps. And so that's where the community has to kind of jump in and fill those gaps, which, you know, the community has done a really good job of it. I feel like Apple could do even better job of it, given all the resources that they have. So hopefully. You speak about Interface Builder. Uh oh. <laughs> yeah. So let's get into it. Like, especially with architecture, how do you deal with managing your UI but keeping a healthy architecture? I'm a storyboard guy, but I'm by no means somebody who's going to like shove it down anybody's throat. I totally get how painful it can be, especially working on a team when you have like merging you have to deal with and crap like that. But what are your recommendations? Or your personal styling. I would not recommend anyone use Interface Builder, especially in large teams. Yes. That's one of the strong opinions that I, I do have. It's mostly because with Interface Builder, you don't have a source of truth. Everything that you put in your storyboard or your nib file is subject to change by the code underneath it. And so when you're looking at the storyboard itself and you're kind of tweaking the layouts and you're tweaking the constraints and stuff like that, there's nothing stopping the code underneath for completely changing that. And so when there's bugs and stuff, sometimes it's really hard to figure out the root cause because you can't just look at the storyboard. That's not enough. You have to go to the storyboard and you have to go look at the code. So that's one of the things that I think Apple could fix that. The other thing around it is if you use a storyboard, so kind of the way that Apple suggests you use them with segues and stuff like that, you do end up coupling all your view controllers together. And there are kind of acts around it to make it less so, but they're still pretty hacky. The simplest example is just a navigation stack, right? You know, you have a navigation controller and you have, you know, you're presenting like, you know, a list of things and you tap on an item. With segways, you're going to have to instantiate the next view controller in that first view controller. Now you're tightly coupling those two things. If you needed to reorganize the navigation path, 
you're going to have to go into touch all the view controllers and kind of re-move things around. So those are like a couple of the big things I would say. There's other ones, but those are the ones that top my mind. Also, like auto layout code is not that hard to write by hand. I think the initial ramp up time is pretty high. It takes a, a little bit to learn how to build constraints by hand, but... You're talking about like the visual format language? I'm just talking about like all the helper methods that Apple provides to create constraints and like constrain one view to another one in code. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, they added a new like Anchor API that makes it way yeah, easier so to, to nice. do. Yeah. Yeah, and like you can write it some helper methods around that stuff. Reading this in your view classes is really nice. And it's really easy to look at a view and see how everything's laid out in code. And the other thing is like simple views in interface builder, maybe it's easier to build those using like like a storyboard or seeing the views like laid out on screen versus in code. But once you start doing like animations and changing constraints, that stuff yeah, is so yeah. much easier to, to write in code. One thing you mentioned there, Josh, is I think a lot of folks don't use this enough where you can totally subclass a UI view and do all your styling and layout in there as opposed to in a view yeah. controller. I, I still see a tons of view controllers with tons of layout and styling code. I think that's one of the biggest complaints about not you know doing your UI and code is like, oh, it bloats my view controllers. And, you know, it adds all this layout and style code into my view controllers. And so you know, what I usually say is, okay, well, that's fine. Just subclass your root UI view, do it all in there. And that really nicely separates the view controller kind of controlling logic from like the UI kind of styling logic. Yeah, and that goes back to the whole point about having healthy app architecture. Your view should not be in the controller. Yeah. Like drawing yeah. your view should be in your view. That's what it's there for. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Cool. Well, thanks guys for coming on. So do you want to talk a little bit about your book that's coming out? Yeah, definitely. So it's been lots of effort getting this book out. We've been working on it for, I think, about three years now. We're super excited about it. We really wanted to write something that was extremely pragmatic and something that would tackle all the real-world scenarios of architecture. I think I've read a bunch of different architecture books that have come out, and they're very theoretical. They usually have very simple example code. And so what we decided to do is to try to build out as much of a real app as we could possibly do. And so what we did is we built basically an app that's kind of like an Uber app, but it's kind of fun. It's a kangaroos pick you up. So it's called Kuber. And so, <laughs> yeah, you, you can hail a kangaroo. And, and started watching your uh, YouTube video. You did a presentation on it about Cougar. I loved it. Yeah. And I'll post a link to that as well. It was a lot of fun. Based it off Uber. So we <laughs> built as much of Uber as we possibly could. And so we had to tackle some hard problems. We couldn't shy away from things like navigation or things like uh, authentication tokens and authentication stuff. And so we tackled all of those things. So because of that, we couldn't cover that many architectures. I think we cover three, but we cover them pretty deeply. And so, yeah, I mean, that's a couple of things I'm excited about. Actually, probably the thing I'm most excited about is Josh and I uh, working together the last you know, uh, six or so years we kind of came up with our own kind of architecture and the last chapter of the book kind of covers that. And we're pretty excited about it. Hopefully the community will have a good response to it. And I'm sure Josh has lots of thoughts on it. <laughs> I'm excited to hear what people think about, about Elements. It's an architecture that we created at Mutual Mobile a long time, at our company a long time ago. And we really try to provide a set of useful architecture patterns that people can like pick and choose which ones they like. And yeah, we're pretty excited to see what people think of that. Awesome. 
The name of the book is Advanced iOS App Architecture, and you can find it on Ray Wenderlich's site. I'll provide the link in the notes. Just to plug our podcast, we are at Bright Digit on Twitter, as well as Facebook, and I just started Instagram, so you should definitely check that out. And before we close out, guys, I wanted to ask you maybe your top three or top two things you're most looking forward to at WWDC this year. I know my number one. (laughs) Definitely the dark theme. And I'm really excited to see what they do with theming because that's something I've been working on at work lately is building a theming for our app. And there's a lot of like third-party theme libraries that are available right now. And I'm excited to see how Apple is going to do this. Yeah, I'm excited about that too. Oh boy. I have things that I want that I don't think are going to happen. <laughs> and things that are going to happen that are cool. Obviously, I think my number one most realistic one is you know, Mars Upon. Just seeing what that looks like, I think would oh, be interesting. Yeah. I'm most interested in seeing how much of the Mac OS stuff is exposed, like things like Safari extensions and stuff like that. Things that I would like to have that I, pro- I think might not happen. I'd love for them to present uh, concurrency prim- primitives for Swift. Something like coroutines would be so awesome. It would be really, really cool. I feel like that if they're going to announce it, like Swift is open source. That's the thing I was thinking about. Swift is open source. So if they're going to announce it, they would announce it. I think it's going to be a Swift 6 or 5.3 or 5.2 thing. I think it's definitely on their radar, but I I doubt we're going to hear about it at WWDC. But yeah, I I totally agree. We need async away. We need some of that stuff. Yep. Yep, yep. So you never know. But yeah, I don't expect it. But yeah, those are my two. Yeah, I was just going to say, going back, like, I wish they fixed Xcode. I wish they get some of that stuff fixed. I think Swift Package Manager should be integrated into Xcode, yep. and it shouldn't be so difficult. I've become a big fan of some of the server-side stuff. I'd like to at mm. least have some sort of plug for, like, Swift Neo and all the different Vapor yep. and all the Katura and all those projects, because I think... They're missing a lot of the that push that Apple could give it. I'm really interested to see, and I've done an episode on it, as Apple has moved more into services, if we're going to see Apple do anything for developers when it comes to services. Yeah, yeah. Are we going to see more robust like CloudKit or integration with that? Because we have Firebase, right? Firebase is the elephant in the room. Like, where's Apple on this front? Yeah. So... Anything else, guys, before we close out? The other thing I would say is, you reminded me of something. What happened to Xcode extensions? Like That seemed <laughs> like it was going to go somewhere. It didn't go anywhere. I mean, it's, yeah, yeah, exactly. Is that like that Alcatraz thing? Yeah, I've hardly ever used yeah, that they thing. They had some cool stuff on there, though. And it seems like that stuff is really more developer tools, just more robust developer tools. That's all I'm asking for. But I am interested in Marzipan and how that's going to work out. I've done some Mac development, and it's not that bad, but... There's a lot of old, old. It's painful. It's, it's hard <laughs> you to. Think kind of... it, I wouldn't go. It's old. That's my problem with it. It's very Objective C focused, and so I think Marzipan will breathe some fresh air. But my worry is that we're going to get kind of how a lot of lazy companies take their iPhone apps and just make <laughs> them really big on the iPad. I have a feeling it's going to be the same on the Mac. Unfortunately. Yeah. Cool. Where can folks get a hold of you as far as on social media? I'm on Twitter. My handle is rcashatx, R-C-A-C-H-A-T-X. That's where I primarily am. My Twitter handle is J-A-B-2109. So guys, thanks again for coming on the show. It's been fantastic. And I'd love to have you again talking more about architecture and how it can help teams work out. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks, Leo.